0: Hello and welcome to Series 3 of Greenbelt's Somewhere to Believe in podcast.
1: In this series, a nun, a rabbi, a Muslim convert, a Lutheran firebrand, a humanist, an American liberation theologian, a retired Met Police officer and an LGBTQ priest all walk into a bar.
0: You know they always say don't talk about religion or politics. Well, funny that, because that's what we like to talk about most at Greenbelt. Perhaps that makes us simple
1: Find out and join us in this series of no-holds-barred conversations with extraordinary people who are prepared to wear their hearts on their rolled-up sleeves, for whom faith isn't personal, who get stuck in because of what they believe. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Paul. So we're into July. The summer is rushing by.
0: It doesn't feel like summer yet. I think we've still got summer to come, right?
1: Oh, definitely, definitely. We've got some fantastic weather booked for later in August, I hear.
0: Oh, that was clever of us to book that.
1: Yeah. So the government is really ramping things up, isn't it? And, and they're saying, yeah, yeah, it's going to, we're just going to, we're going to go for it. 19th of July, we're just, we're just doing it. Yeah. How, how does that make you feel? What are your thoughts around that, Catherine?
0: I think I'm ready for it.
1: <laughs> You're ready? Yeah. <laughs> And, um, how does it make you feel about the festival that we cancelled, thinking that actually technically and practically it it could have been possible?
0: I still don't think that it could be possible, actually, I think that we still made the right decision because even though we've got this nineteenth of July and they're saying that we're not going to go backwards, I guess that's still t b c and it's still really up in the air and it's still alive pandemic and live issue and teamed with all that i don't think there's clarity around insurance yet i don't think i think that there was a real like the landscape had changed like there was a lot of um suppliers and artists that have been affected by this you know not having not be able to have artists from overseas there's still a question about that whether the artists coming in need to quarantine um suppliers a lot of suppliers are still in short supply you know people have gone under like there's a real it's really not settled yet it's a Mm. really difficult landscape and so i think that wholeheartedly we made the right decision
1: it's not like you can just suddenly switch a switch and everything goes from a to b um it's quite complicated and, and nuanced and i think it's the right thing and one thing i'm noticing is of course you know you feel ready for it. I feel ready for it. I think it's the right thing that we move towards, uh, you know, an opening up as as soon as we safely can. But I'm noticing that a lot of people are very nervous. A lot of people are very cautious uh, on an individual level, on an institutional level. You know, we've been conditioned by this whole experience into feeling super, super nervous about things. And I don't think that's going away anytime soon.
0: No, it's going to take a while, isn't it?
1: Yeah yeah so anyway we'll, we shall see by the time our podcast uh, series three comes to an end we'll be living in a different sort of uh, environment and how how will we make a podcast against a backdrop where there isn't a lockdown
0: what will it what will we have to talk about <laughs>
1: i mean yeah i mean come <laughs> on well perhaps you know we've had a good time anyway <laughs> <laughs> You were noticing, Catherine. Um, you were listening to, um, I think it was Rishi Sunak being interviewed on the TV this morning, and you you were getting a little bit riled about the way that politicians don't answer questions. Tell yeah. me a bit more.
0: I mean, we you know we all know this. This is the thing. We see politicians on TV, and we see that no matter what question they're asked, they're trying to dodge it and just say repeat the company line. So you you hear them repeating. The same phrases reg- that don't a lot of times don't even answer the question or really relate to the question. They just and I just got really annoyed this morning seeing that because I thought that it's like a real assault on democracy. It's it's somebody, but, but we're also used to it. And we're also okay with it. Like in a de- democratic society, shouldn't you, able, you Shouldn't you be able to? Ask politicians questions and 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 get an honest answer. Be able to honestly see what they're thinking, what their plans are. Yeah, that to me would be. But we but we're all okay with the fact that that doesn't happen. That our politicians are media trained.
1: It's just such a rarity to have a politician who really just completely speaks sort of like from from the hip, as it were, and and just actually instinctively responds to a question yeah it's it's very stock isn't it and that's what we're all that's how it works
0: it makes it impenetrable it makes it it makes us on the outside when we shouldn't be on the outside we should be on the inside like i always think about you know people always say that the politicians work for us and that's something that i keep trying to remember
1: we had russell brand to the festival the last time we were in a field and of course he continues to be making these really, really intriguing um, and imaginative, provocative podcasts and stuff um, that he always gets these super interesting guests on. And you were listening to one of his most recent ones.
0: So interesting. Yeah, he has a podcast on an app called Luminary, which I signed up for at the start of the summer, and I've just been listening to loads of them. And a lot of the guests are people that we know and have had at the festival. And it's just really interesting. And I was listening to one yesterday with an author and a writer called Angela Nagel. And she was giving a bit of a criticism of this idea of liberalism and how... One thing that I found really interesting, she was talking about how, like, a lot of um, black voters in America voted for Trump. Not, not. I don't know the percentage. I'm guessing that lots didn't as well, but you know, a significant amount for, for which is surprising, I think. And she was talking about how the liberal left have this idea of div- diversity. And it's, and it's almost taken over from the idea of inequality. Like, it's it's an idea that is really... The reason why it's got a lot of traction is because it's really easy to get behind and to show and to wear on your sleeve without making too much change. Like, you can diversify your panels or you can diversify your company, but does it make any change to the live... Like, does it make any change to inequality? Not really, Whereas what Trump kept banging on about was creating more jobs, creating more jobs, creating more jobs. And especially for, like, minority communities or even the uh, the black community, like, that would change people's lives in a significant way, which I thought was really interesting.
1: It's easy to to bash the whole Trump project uh, based on sort of, like, his behaviour, his character, the rhetoric around it, but... There, something clearly was connecting with people about that whole project.
0: And there's something to me that I think that we haven't quite got right in this conversation about diversity, which is about like, is that, is that just making our white spaces more diverse or are we really creating like equal spaces where everybody, that space is created for everybody?
1: So who are we chatting to on the podcast today, Catherine?
0: Today we're speaking to Dante Stewart. And Dante Stewart was one of the first conversations we actually recorded in this podcast. So some of the references are from a while ago. But uh, Dante Stewart is uh, an American, an ex-American footballer, college football player. And he's also a theologian, a black theologian. And we got recommended that we speak to him as like a really up and coming brilliant voice um, and didn't disappoint
1: a very different sort of conversation and voice to the rest of the series but that's what we're trying to bring you a whole range of different sort of faith speakers but yeah we love chatting to him and we hope you enjoy listening to him as much as we did Dante it's great to talk to you where are we where are we speaking to you today
2: Yeah. So I am currently in Augusta, Georgia. Um, uh, It's near Atlanta, Georgia, Um, about two hours to the east of Atlanta, actually. Um, It's actually a really beautiful day outside today. A really incredible day. Uh, My family and I, we're going to be Uh, going on a walk after this uh, and I'm gonna do some class I got class during that walk so yeah 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 I'm so happy uh to be with y'all and joining you from across the across the Atlantic uh you know it's a it's just a great opportunity to be able to be with you guys again
0: and and how has this year been for you how has the um I mean it's been such a crazy and incredible year how's it been for you over there?
2: Um, yeah, it's been, yeah, like for, for many people, same, you know, it's, I mean, it's challenging, you know, it's a challenging time, um, as people, as humans, uh, it's challenging, you know, to live life in a, in in a global pandemic, uh, has just wreaked so much havoc across the world. Um, and in some sense, you know, not only are we dealing with a global pandemic, Uh, But we're dealing with, you know, the 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 other pandemics of, you know, racism and sexism and misogyny and homophobia and transphobia and and and, and just increasing global inequality, as well as uh, trying to engage in our larger societal structures, uh, which oftentimes, whether you're in the UK or the US, seem to be ungovernable. Uh, seem not to reflect both the lives as well as the vision of life that that, that those who are citizens uh, desire for ourselves. Um, So on that level, you know, on the kind of pandemic uh, level, it's been uh, quite a challenging time and that's on top of, you know, the own, your 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 own personal struggles that you go throughout that go through throughout the year, your own kind of personal emotional and mental health uh struggles, uh, um, familiar uh, the familial struggles, uh you know, being in school and trying to do school in a pandemic, uh, doing ministry, being a minister uh, and doing ministry in a pandemic and, and so much death and, and loneliness and just life is not the same. So on that level, you know, it's exhausting. If I'm if I'm being very, very honest, it's a very exhausting year uh, going into tw- 2021 uh, and just in some sense eclipsing uh, last week. I think I saw it on social media whatever shared, uh, on social media, like, yo, like, like last week, last year was the was the last normal week we all collectively experienced in many ways. Uh, and so it's exhausting on one, one level, but also, you know, it's been a very encouraging, um, year. If, if in some sense we are to say that, a year that that this year, not just simply 2021, but you know from last March to this march is, in, is, is encompassing a year to be remembered in uh, a year an ongoing year that we're experiencing. Uh, there's also been encouraging just seeing uh, both the public and personal resilience of of, of, of people uh, but also the ways in which you know we have generated forms of solidarity. Um and, and sympathy and empathy and also ways in which, you know, people have been producing and creating in ways, you know, that has brought deep meaning and deep joy into life. Um, As I'm thinking kind of in this kind of public way, but on a personal level, it's been encouraging. And as I've been able to finish my book. Uh, Throughout the pandemic and all all that is going around with with George going on, you know, globally as we struggle against white supremacy uh, in the form of police brutality and violence and terrorism uh, to be able to to create and produce a book uh, uh, and and to in some sense not give up on, on, on so much of life. Uh, I will say it's it's it's, it's been encouraging. I uh, and we expecting baby number two. So yeah. baby number two, baby <laughs> number two is uh, we, we actually today was interesting. Today, my wife and I have been together nine years on on today, uh, and so nine years today as well as you know baby number two coming up. You know I can't be I can't be too mad at that. So yeah, that's it's exhausting and encouraging all in one. So yeah,
0: congratulations. Yeah,
2: Thank congratulations. You. And how do you, where do
1: you dig into Dante for the for the for the resources and the energy and and uh, the 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 direction and the vision to keep going? You know, in the face of, like you say, not just the COVID nineteen pandemic, but the the broader, the the wider reachings, almost the longer lasting pandemics of inequality, of racism, etc. Where do you where do you go for your for your
2: resource to keep you going? Yeah. Wow. That's a great question, actually. Um, you know, for me, I think on, on the one level, it's been, you know, internally. So whenever life gets confusing, you know, oftentimes when we're talking about particularly talking about resilience, uh, uh, much of our resilience is is, is being able uh, to face inward and find uh, the kind of inward resources to be able to. Uh, believe that life does not end in this moment so it is in some sense have been an inward turn so getting alone uh with myself to to kind of deal with you know how am i feeling how am i doing uh what's going on uh you know with me and so you know every morning uh there's a constant for me I wake up around four thirty, five five o'clock every morning and I'm you know working out and and doing that time of, of of working out it's you know it's, it's kind of my kind of spiritual nourishment time, my devotion time, uh, to really, you know, as I got my music on, I'm really, you know, in some sense working out, but I'm also, you know, releasing those endorphins and and serotonin, uh, to, to kind of help me, you know, get that kind of mental, uh, and, and physiological boost. Uh, but also, you know, it's been a turning outward as well. And so, uh, not only doing therapy and being able to process a lot of things through therapy, uh, but in all, uh, but leaning on the resources outside of myself, of course, through my wife and through through my family and us kind of going through it together. Uh, but, you know, I think for me, it's been also, you know, reaching out to 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 my community and my church family, uh, you know, even though we're not meeting and haven't met since things shut down. Uh, you know, we have still been so intimately and deeply connected with one another uh, as as a as a religious space and community. Um, and also I've been, you know, being able to connect with my friends and, and, and and you know, you know, we've been able to, you know, FaceTime with one another and, and trying, you know, to keep that that that. Uh, friendship and just that that intimacy going. And so I've been able to lean on that, but also leaning on reading. Uh, I've been reading some really good books, uh, particularly as I think about my own kind of theological and spiritual resources. Uh, Rowan Williams out of the UK has really kept me going. Uh, Brother Rowan is, you know, has been top shelf for me Uh, uh, or, or whatnot, being able to uh, really lean on ruins, kind of reflection, but also many of my friends in the UK, uh, uh, as as well, and even my friends here, and you know, being able to express myself through writing—that's been, you know, a, a lot of times been what's been keeping me going as well. I was reading recently, uh, Octavia Butler. What was so it was it was really good. Uh, Octavia Butler is a is a black science fiction writer. Um, and and I was reading this really good thing that she wrote in Essence magazine uh called A Few Rules for Predicting the Future. Uh and I was also reading in, in in Micah uh not too long ago where 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 Micah at the end of the chapter, at the end of the book, was like, Yo, uh one day is coming where it's gonna be a time for building. And I was thinking about this kind of reality of building, that that Micah is able to look into the future and say that okay, at some point in the future there's going to be, there's going to come a time where the things that are broken will once again be mended. There, there's coming a time where, uh, where, where the things that beset us is, is, is finally going to give way, uh, to a better reality. There's going to be coming a time where the things, you know, that breaks us and makes us being in ways that we don't like to be broken and being, uh, we're going to be put back together again. And I was reading that joint. And it really hit me. I was reading Octavia Butler's joint How to Predict the F- How to Predict the Future. And it was so interesting. One of her students asked her, so Parable of the Sore and Parable of the Talents is this kind of very apocalyptic type black science fiction, speculative fiction writing. And one of her friends was like, Yeah, I mean, one of her students was like, yo, is uh you know, is are we just doomed? Is there no answers? Are we just doomed? And so he smiled and, you know, as he thought it was a joke based on her writing, he was like, yo, like your, your, your writing is incredibly pessimistic. Uh, and she was like, yeah, on one level it is. But on another level, I didn't make these problems up. She said, all I did was look around at the problems that we're neglecting right now and gave them about 30 years to grow into full fledged disasters. And so the student asks, so we're doomed. And she's like, no, we're, we're, we're not doomed. She meant to say that there's no single answer that will solve all of our future problems. There's no magic bullet. Instead, there are thousands of answers. At least you can become one of them if you choose to be. And so as I've been thinking about turning inward and turning outward to others, I've taken it upon myself to believe, as Octavia Butler said to her student, that the way that you predict the future is that you become the answer to the problems that you see around you. And so that's been what's keeping me going. You know, on the one hand, uh, as I put in my in my profiles, you know, Jesus and James Baldwin, uh, but also being able to. To look inward and say, how can I deal with the problems that I see around us? And how can I imagine with other people a better future than the one that's been held out for us uh, right now in these moments? Wow.
0: Yeah, I remember something similar. I think when um, Trump came in four years ago, there was a a great um, journalist over this um, over in England that said that things have to almost be get burn to the ground so that you can start building up a better future from the ashes and in some ways it feels like this last year has given kind of the foundations for people to start building up things again it's like people have been shouting out so much about inequalities and race inequalities and they've got Trump out even though you know that was like not like the whole country turned around and booted him but do you feel like We might have hit that point now where things have got just kind of bad enough that people are kind of being awoken from their apathy and are starting to do things
2: is this a moment of change i don't know because we have in some sense these the 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 power of the people an institution of power working at once simultaneously against one another, trying to uh, invite us into a better vision or in some sense, their own inequitable vision uh, that they want us to find meaning in. They, you have these multiple stories that we're trying to find meaning in and in some sense, life uh, is it's not static. It's cyclical. It's it's a push and a pull of trying to imagine a more loving and just world for all of us. And so on the one hand, I can say, yes, change is happening because I see people who have not in some sense uh, woke up uh, or whatnot, who have not in some sense engaged in a struggle to see a more loving and just world actually trying to do better. But then that question depends particularly on whose story is the story that we're telling our history from we we know that history depends on our understanding of history depends on who gets to tell the story I remember the great literary theorist Erasayy would say that in some sense, nations are, are, are protected in a way in his book, Culture and Imperialism. He says, you know, nations are built into stories and in some sense, our understanding of power is oftentimes based on whose story we are listening to. And so if we tell the story from white middle class uh, uh, now reading how to be anti-racist, then we would say, yes, like, yo, the things are changing. Uh, if we're reading it from a story of white institutional power, uh, engaging in saying Black Lives Matter and finally putting, you know, trying to, in some sense, imagine better for themselves, then we would say, yeah, things are changing. But if we narrate the story of change from black women's perspective, particularly as we're thinking about, you know, things that went down yesterday with Meghan uh, uh, with, with Meghan Merkel, uh, uh, how do we tell the story of change? If we tell the story from her perspective, how do we tell the story of change in the church? If we tell it from the perspective of black people or uh, or gay people or those who are trans, can we tell this triumphant story or do we have to retell our story to take into account the reality that history is a story of humanity and humans are as beautiful and as terrible as we know ourselves to be? And we need to constantly try and imagine better for ourselves. And so the story of this moment predicting the future is it a time of hope will be told based upon the ability of all of us, whether we find ourselves in the UK or the U.S., being able to humbly tell our stories and listen to one another and try and explore worlds that have not been open yet. And in some sense, enlarge our view of the world based on the stories that we are listening to and try and tell a better story of change in this moment and what can be possible for all of us. And so to answer your question, I hope that answer, you know, <laughs> your question in as in best way I can try and answer it. I don't know, but I want to try and figure that out as well
1: that's yeah
0: it does thank you
2: (laughs) so so Dante you're uh,
1: it's amazing listening to you and all the your experience your reading your vision your you know the the fire in your belly what
2: how about you growing up where did that come from were you were you how were you raised we were raised Pentecostal but my and my dad were raised Baptist and Methodist uh uh particularly Uh, And so black Methodism and black Baptist life uh, is very oriented in what Raphael Warnock uh, in his excellent, excellent, excellent book. uh, The divided mind of the black church uh, would call a liberationist faith and a liberationist church. And so the black Methodist and the black Baptist came out of. Uh 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 out of enslavement, uh not being passive reception, uh receivers of a certain type of slaveholder, white supremacist Christianity, but in their Africanness, they held on to the African spirituality that they took, that they brought with them from their homelands, and in some sense they reformed this Christian tradition to turn it black. Even though black wasn't a thing uh, until the 70s with this black consciousness and black power movement in the back end of the 60s and all throughout the 70s, they turned the religion black where where white supremacist Christianity wanted to make black a bad thing. The Baptists and the Methodists turned black into a life-giving liberationist faith, as Raphael Wadnott Reverend Dr. Raphael Warnock would say, uh, piety of a certain type of Christian piety, but also a certain certain type of prophetic activism that, that, that was critical of the present, uh, engage with the past and imaginative of the future. And so my dad during that time and my mom coming of age in the 70s, uh, that's when they went from being Negro to turning black, uh, where where the black arts movement of the 70s with the rise of Amiri Baraka and the rise of Tony K Bambara and the rise of Maya Angelou and the rise of Audrey Lorde and the likes of James Cone and James Baldwin and all these gospel artists of uh, Aretha Franklin and Spirit in the Dark and blending of this world of the sacred. And the secular, and in some sense, turning the world as a mere Baraka would say, into a black poem. And this is the way we were raised. We were raised being deeply connected to our black dignity and personhood. My mama, I can tell you stories of like, yo, me We we're, we're, as kids, my mama made sure that we went to Atlanta to the civil rights museum. She made sure that we went to Memphis to the Lorraine Motel. She made sure that we understood the people that we came from. She made sure that we looked at eyes on the prize. She made sure that we. In in. in some sense, understood uh, the ground which we came from. But sadly, as my story goes, uh, I uh, in some sense, you know, going into playing college football at Clemson University, the the further you kind of get deeply immersed in white evangelicalism, the further you move away from black life. But in some sense, I lost, you know, that that Pentecostal spirit, that black revolutionary power and fervor uh, that in some sense, uh, ever since 2016, 17, 18, it's been a uh, recovery for me i remember tony morrison uh writing in i think 1974 she 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 wrote this new york times piece a beautiful piece where she called it it's like growing up black again
1: that's amazing. We've got to get you to Greenbelt. We've got to get you to
2: our <laughs> <Yeah>. festival. <laughs> we, hey, we, say the word when when this pandemic over. Me and my wife been wanting to come to the UK. So
0: you mentioned a couple of times there this kind of like evangelicalism, this this uh, right wing Christianity that's kind of like a bit of a. I don't want to say plague over America, but maybe that's that's the right word. Can you think of a better word, Paul? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, it seems endemic. I don't know. Yes, thank you. <laughs> P- possibly.
0: Uh, yeah, which seems endemic over America, um, and so that's something that you started to kind of engage with, or kind of saw that effect on you through college.
2: Yeah, going g- going to Clemson University, which is a predominantly white institution, um, you know, the, the black population at Clemson University is, I think, like six or eight percent, and so usually when you go into predominantly white spaces. Whether you desire it or not, that space will always socialize people into the concerns, into the politics, into the practices, and into, in some sense, the values of the dominant group that you are in. And so, in some sense, to be in that space is to be immersed in a world that does not know you the way that you know you. It's as a, I love the way Kiese Layman put that joint, you know, in some sense to go into this white space is to be distanced from what he calls black abundance. It's to be distanced from, you know, the ways in which we learn how to love and learn how to fail and learn how to grow up and learn how to make something out of nothing. And so. To be in this space, when I talk about these white spaces, I'm talking about the white institution of power, the white claim upon the world, the white space that in some sense believes itself to be the norm. And so to be inside of this space, which believes itself to be normal, as I said, it's also in some sense to be taken out of the spaces that we oftentimes call home. And in some sense, it's to look back at those spaces that we come, with, come, come from with a critical eye, because everything about these white institutional spaces say that this is the place that's right. This is the place that is to be desired. So oftentimes we look at our home spaces and our home churches and our family and our literature and our beauty and our creativity as less than be des- than to be desired and less than right And so the more I engage in that space, yes as you you're asking yeah, the more that you know the the space in some sense because of the kind of uh, the enclosed world and the living in the bubble uh, uh, the more I engage uh, with this understanding of of, of whiteness and uh, becoming in some sense, committed to the ways in which they imagined the world for us and for themselves.
1: Dante, you, you said earlier on that in some senses in the recent years, it's almost as if you have um, become black again or rediscovered that, that black um, heritage and resource and, and beauty. Um, as you were talking about Clemson then, um, but I'm, well, as I was hearing you talking, I was thinking um, uh, I don't know, I was thinking about stories of exile and being strangers in a strange land and all those those sort of Christian biblical ideas of um, just not be, being taken away from where you're rooted and where you belong and having to somehow learn to sing your song in a strange land. Um, you know, was there, was there some of that sort of experience of feeling almost exiled from
2: from who you were? when you're in, in Clemson, in a spiritual
1: sort of sense?
2: Mm. Well, I wouldn't say necessarily at Clemson, because you got to realize at this moment, I, I didn't have this awakening during that time. Yeah, I was very much kind of a cog in the wheel. I was very much deeply invested in this space. And so my kind of transformation and, and, and exit, you know, didn't happen to many years later. You know, I I was in, you know, I went in college in 2010, and, you know, all throughout college, around 2012 is when I really kind of deep, 2011, 2012, got deeply immersed in the kind of FCA white evangelical world. And that lasted all the way up until 2016, 17, and 18. At 17 and 18 is when I finally, you know, my wife and I made our exit from. Uh, That particular space And so, yeah, during that time You know, it wasn't exile at that moment Uh, It was very much Investment uh, And and benefiting from A certain type of narration Of uh, a story of me being Exceptional Uh, Me being the exceptional black person in that space Me being very charismatic Like I am right now, you know, being able You know, to think about big ideas And bring them together in very Charismatic ways, that was to be the Desired, you know, and so you know, I, I was able to pull, you know, John Calvin and talk about uh, ca- the relation of Calvin's institutes to, you know, the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement, or being able to connect, you know, apologetics in uh, Luke chapter twenty-four or Acts chapter nine or whatever, or, or kind of the, the whatever ways in which you know pu- you perform uh, if we are to think about faith as a public performance. Uh, I think that language to think about, you know, performance studies and black studies and the ways in which, you know, black studies and performance studies talk about the ways we embody ourselves and our desires uh, and engage in those things in very public and performative ways. So in some sense, if we think about the worship day Sunday as a performance of our faith would help us in understanding, you know, what type of faith are we performing? And so as I think about that, I was able to, you know, perform those type of way faith ways uh, and faith stories and faith practices in, in, in really good ways that brought me a lot of value in the white Christian space. Uh, But it wasn't until, you know, the shootings of 2016, uh, particularly of Alton Sterling, Fernando Castile, and the presidency of Donald Trump, and then the subsequent me being called upon to lead a group uh, through a a book by a white pastor uh, in Minnesota, um, that that I began to, you know, start to question many of the assumptions of the white world, uh, of the white Christian experience. Uh, and And it wasn't overnight uh, I mean, this was a long, hard, discouraging, depressing and challenging process. You know, it's a very hard journey. It ruined friendships. I lost a lot of opportunities. Uh, I hurt a lot of people th- along the way because of my deep investment and my benefit. And so it's been years, you know, if I'm thinking about exile <laughs> uh or, or, or whatnot and, and this kind of exilic narrative for my own story, you know, exile. You know, I was comfortable in Egypt. I wasn't, you know, (laughs) I I wasn't experiencing exile for many for many years. Yeah, Uh, I I was very much uh, a part of this Egyptian project uh, of assimilation and building my own kind of value within this white Christian tradition. And in some sense, you know uh, uh exploiting that value as well, uh, uh through, uh, 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 knowing how to maneuver in this space. And so it wasn't until those shootings happens and really, you know, my, I credit my wife with a lot of my transformation, which the majority of my transformation, my wife being honest with me in ways that I did not want to be honest with myself that sometimes, you know, As I think about my own journey of exile in Egypt and my long time benefiting in Egypt and my lonely journey of exile and still even going through it and finding my way back home into the black space. It is hard to embrace our own freedom and liberation because of the ways that our oppressors have made us feel that we are less than human and can only survive based on their resources and that our freedom, our journey of freedom. Is not our blessing, but it becomes our burden. And I think about my own story my own story of G- Egypt. Was it possible that I benefited in Egypt the ways that I did and struggled through exile the ways that I did? Because I forgot the story of the black women and the black men and the black faith that I came from. I can remember my grandma saying right now, boy, don't you forget where you come from. And I think about the ways that I forgot. Is it possible, you know, that I forgot the story that I come came from? And is it possible that we don't experience exile and we struggle through exile and we get comfortable in Egypt? Because oftentimes the story that give us meaning is a story that benefit us personally at the expense of solidarity with our larger community.
0: And how. How has that in reality, how has that changed your faith or your understanding of your faith going through that exile and away from um, that more white evangelical kind of take on religion?
2: Um, you know, one of the saddest things that I've that I've come across <clears throat> over the last few years is that many people cannot imagine a faith story beyond the faith story of white evangelical Christianity. And that is one of the saddest things for me is that so many, whether you find yourself in the UK or the U S many times, many people can't imagine a faith story beyond the story of conservative evangelicalism. Now I want to be careful and I want to be historically honest that everything about this story ain't bad. I would not say that this story in some sense It is not a Christian story. I would say, though, that it is, you know, a part of many times, oftentimes a part of the worst of our Christian tradition. If we're honest, there are oftentimes many, many times where our faith stories that we inherit and embrace oftentimes become harmful to ourselves and others. If I can bring a little bit of Bible in this real quick, when I, I was reading um, uh, uh, the Gospels not, not too long ago and, and Jesus, you know, has said, you know, you have heard it said, but I say to you. When I was reading that, it hit me that Jesus was showing us that sometimes and oftentimes there are bad interpretations toxic theologies and unloving practices that need to be rethought and reimagined. So when I left white evangelical spaces and it was a hard leaving because I had developed friendships with people, I had developed a own kind of story of significance in the public space. And even in my own self, Uh, it was a story that gave me meaning. It was the story that gave me value. And oftentimes when you leave those spaces, you're leaving a meaningful part of how you understand yourself. I had to take on better, a better faith story than the faith story that was offered to me. than white evangelicalism, it was James Baldwin uh, who had this incredible quote uh, uh, that reminds me much of Jesus saying and you had heard to say, but I say to you, uh, you know, James Baldwin in the fire. Next time he said, if the concept of God has any validity or any use, it can only make us larger and freer and more loving. And if God cannot do this, if this idea of God cannot do it, then it's about time that we get rid of him. And he, and he it is almost as if Baldwin would say with Jesus that sometimes what you are committed to doesn't always match the character of God. And so for me, redirection means I needed to be black first and then Christian. I wanted to be hella black. And humbly Christian, I <laughs> wanted to stand in the world as a black Christian, trying to find ways of inviting other faith stories into my own story. Other life stories into my own story as I try to join Jesus in this this kind of beautiful, hard, ugly, messy work of grace in trying to imagine a better story for humanity. If one wants to theologically say that Jesus healing and his liberation work is fundamentally the revelation of what God desires for human life. One can also say that black people seeing themselves as human and alive is also the revelation of what God desires for humanity. The love that God wants hum- humans to experience, the dignity and the value, as Ron Williams would say, that all of us have inside of us, stamped on our human personhood. That I wanted to say and declare that black lives matter black is beautiful that the glory of god is black people made alive
1: it's been wonderful talking with you
2: it's really nice to hear you talk about rowan
1: williams as well rowan used to be the patron of greenbelt and uh for a little while in the early part of this uh, millennium that sounds weird to say um and he once described greenbelt as part of his mental furniture which was a phrase i was i was quite like but yeah his his theology and his visionary uh, and his poet and his poetry mean a lot to us at, at Greenbelt, so it's nice to hear him referenced
2: over there. Connect me to Rowan. In any way. I would love somebody set up a zoom or something. I would just love to spend some time with Rowan. If somebody got the plug and the hookup. put your boy on. Uh, but if anybody talks to Rowan, let him send him my love.
1: Uh, we'll try and get you and him in the same field, perhaps in 2022, who knows? You never know. We can dream a little yeah, bit. Yeah, definitely.
0: We need to, yeah.
1: <laughs> um, thank you so much for your time. To to it's wonderful listening to, to Dante speaking like that. It's just, it takes you to church, doesn't it, in a way?
0: He, yeah, he's so knowledgeable and insightful. And, yeah, I think I had a lot of, like, moments that... Really changed the way that I saw things. Really eye-opening moments from his conversation.
1: What sort of things, Catherine?
0: Like he was talking a lot about his time in a, like a white evangelical space, and that him being inserted into that space. Like you take you take on the kind of politics and identities and the causes that that space has, and you have to conform to that space, and that there's like real benefits there was benefits for him in doing that but how he came out of that and he used this brilliant phrase which was he wants to be hella black and modestly christian and you know i started to think about our festival because i think that we really try we are a predominantly white space but we want to be really open and we want to be really welcoming and we program a really diverse program very intentionally diverse but what I don't think because we don't have a space that's hella black.
1: How do we do that? How do we, how can you make, how can you make that sort of change from the, from our point of view?
0: That was like a light bulb moment to mm. me about like how, because it's not about when you have this white space, you're kind of saying, like he was saying that that's, that's the aspiration that you give to people. That's the right way.
1: And, it, you know, it's something that we've talked about and wrestled with as a festival over a very, very, very long time. But have we have we really done anything? Have we made that change? Those, you know, I'm not sure. You know, I, I think it's one thing to talk about it. It's um, it's another to to sort of like make those significant, recognisable changes. One thing I was thinking about when he was describing being in that um, predominantly white space, and about how he curiously he was very honest, wasn't he? He said he, he even quite well benefited from it because he was a, a great sort of like orator people loved being in his company he was clever he could he could do all that sort of stuff it reminded me that a lot of times in life you can perform a certain way if you have a certain character you can perform a certain way in order to be loved accepted fit in etc but sometimes performance isn't really true to who you who, who you are and it made me think about the way that performance can be something that is a lie or in great art performance is the most truthful thing in the whole world. Do you see what I mean? It made me think about the whole idea of performance and identity.
0: I think I felt the same as coming into a workspace, like having to conform to like a very male idea of leadership or of, you know, a professional working life and, getting rid of those things that are, I guess, more natural to me or uh, maybe signify some more feminine traits, I guess, in inverted quotes. I think we're starting to re-look at that. I think we're starting to think about that. I don't think we're there, but I think we're starting to really think about how we can dismantle that.
1: That sense of just um, giving people the, the licence and the space to, to be be who they are and to be able to be comfortable and, and proud about that um, rather than having to conform and perform
0: and just really looking at what these spaces like I don't think I've ever I think this year and last year is the first time that I started to really think about spaces spaces who they've always been taken up by who they work for and who they don't work for and i know we had a conversation with dream nails where we talked about this and about like the gig space primarily being built around like very typical male um behaviors and i've never even thought about spaces like that before and i think it's something we really really need to dig into and break apart in order to strive for that real equality.
1: There was a a James Baldwin quote that um, Dante said, reminded us about, um, which you particularly liked.
0: He said, if the concept of God was any use, it can only make us freer and more loving. And if God cannot do this, then it's time that we get rid of him. So simple, so simple, but like completely true.
1: That represents quite a lot of challenge to people of faith that idea that if it doesn't enlarge you make you more free more loving then it's not god it's not it's not good religion it's bad religion (laughs) that's quite that's quite challenging it's simple but it's actually quite powerful but it's very powerful (laughs) There was one bit near the beginning where I asked him, I know you asked him, Catherine, how how it had been living through the pandemic where he was in, in the southern states. And the one thing that stood out for me is he said it, his response to that had involved a turn inward and a turn outward. In other words, he'd had the space to be more reflective of himself, who he was, and he'd also, of course, been challenged to turn outward as well and think, wow, there is such need in my community and in the world. And I was conscious that for me, my understanding of a really healthy faith is one that has those two elements, has that sort of like reflective, um, prayerful, quiet discipline, but also has that active, what are we going to do, what are we going to do um, type thing, that 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 struck me. That sort of action and reflection. I find myself very easily drawn to action, you know, and I, I neglect, I neglect that sort of form of of contemplation of, of really sort of drawing strength and taking stock and getting ready for the fight. If you see what I mean, yeah. are you are you like that?
0: Yeah, I have. I haven't been this last year and a half, which I've really enjoyed, but I have been before that because I've always just. Worked, long hours, commuted, traveled, you know, I'm, I'm kind of just going through the motions of a day, like come back, cook for myself, clean for myself, you know, maybe watch some TV, go to bed, wake up early, make a coffee, get on a train, go to London, do some work, come back. You know, you kind of just get in this routine um, mm. just to get through the day. And I really, really appreciated that routine being absolutely busted apart and being able to have some time to really reflect I think it's made me happier. I think it's kind of given me more direction. You know, I think it's so necessary for us. And it's um, it's not talked about or the emphasis isn't really put on it enough.
1: And I think it's there. It's there in our spiritual traditions. It's there in our religions and our faith stories. But we we sort of very easily overlook it. That thread of contemplation, of quiet, of just self-care as well as you know, care for the world.
0: Yeah, like all all spiritual traditions they have a version of it, don't they? So like in Christianity you have prayer and you know, in other traditions you would it would be like a meditation or something like that. Um but I I've never really thought about prayer in that way. I've thought about prayer in a way that you sit down and you kind of you it is almost part of your routine. Nothing to really think about, something to go through the motions, you have to do it. But I think the idea of every night taking a moment to really reflect upon the day is really, really useful.
1: When we were chatting, Catherine, you were saying that you like the bit where Dante's um, quoting from the book of Micah. Um, What was he saying there about, was it about rebuilding he was talking about?
0: Yeah, a time for rebuilding will come. Yeah. Mm
1: you've got this sense of it almost needs, everything needs to almost be almost sort of like metaphorically burnt to the ground. If things are going to get better, sometimes they've got to get really, really bad.
0: Yeah. Which is a scary idea. And, um, and I think would involve like, that would be really difficult for a lot of people because that's very uncomfortable and is is very unstable. So I think it's scary. But I, uh, there's just something in me that thinks that like it's the only way because what, what I see happening now is that like a lot of corporations, I think they call it like greenwashing or there's probably another word where a lot of corporations and institutions are changing and marketing their way in a different way which feels like social change is happening so you have like companies like Amazon being like yes black lives matter whilst at the same time you know not paying black workers in Alabama anywhere near a decent wage or giving them um, you know proper workers rights or anything like that so it's um it doesn't mean anything but I fear that the change that change could be come and be quite superficial. And that's what happens when you don't break stuff apart, when you keep those kind of structures in place and try and create change around them. Like how much does that actually work?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Another writer who Dante references is Audre Lorde and she's written very powerfully about um from a black perspective about the idea of, you know, if you're going to if you're going to dismantle the the mansion of the plantation owner, um, don't then just rebuild sort of like an equivalent mansion using the same materials in the same fashion because you're going to end up with a system that will be very much the same a bit like what you're saying it's only it's only going to be a superficial sort of reset when actually re- the sort of rebuilding that Micah is prophesying in the Bible is is a really radical rebuilding that will look very different that might not use the same materials. There's one bit that I really liked, Catherine, is that, um, and it's very simple, but I've thought about it a lot since we talked to Dante. He reminded me that in the gospel stories, a lot of times it's said that Jesus says this phrase, you have heard it said, but I say to you. In other words, you might think you know what your faith requires. You might think you know the story, but hold on a minute let me put it another way or let me tell you again in a way that might make you think differently about it that is so simple but that for me is at the heart of a healthy religion is the idea that you adopt this story you take it on but you never stop re thinking about it or reworking it but I like, I like the way that Dante was saying what he thinks Jesus is doing there is effectively giving us all the permission to reimagine a better story. And I like that.
0: You know, I think that's kind of what Dante did to me in this conversation. Like, I feel like he, he you know, talked about uh, ideas and situations, especially around black culture and black identity that I heard and i and i i like i believe in but he broke apart that conversation he showed it me in a different way that i think is much more significant deep and yeah i think he's done that
1: so we need to get him to the festival he talks a lot about wanting to connect with his brother rowan rowan williams
0: that would be brilliant (laughs)
1: let's see if we can make that happen Anyway, wonderful. So our our podcast series is drawing to a close. We only have one more guest next week, Catherine. Um, Who are we talking to for our final episode of Series 3?
0: Well, we are talking to Greenbelt regular and favourite Nadia Boltzweber.
1: And we were really super excited to be able to include Nadia in this because... she is a firm favorite but behind the scenes what perhaps greenbelters won't know is how much she thinks of greenbelt and how much she loves greenbelt and how much she wants to support us. So occasionally we'll get an email popping into our inbox from Nadia, Katherine and I and it'll say count me in. I want if you'll have me, <laughs> I want to be there. I'll get my airfares covered. I just want to be there. And that's a very very lovely and precious precious thing. <laughs> We always like it when people uh, respond to the podcast to tell us what you're thinking. You can email us on stbi at greenbelt.org.uk. You can also let us know what you're thinking on social media.
0: Our Twitter is at Greenbelt. Our Instagram is at Greenbelt Festival. And we're Greenbelt Festival on Facebook too.
1: Yeah. And if you want to um, get notifications about the podcast coming out and get a bit more in depth, um, some links and references and resources, we do a Friday email uh, that you can sign up to greenbelt.org.uk forward slash podcast. We'd like to say a few thank yous to the people who help us make these podcasts.
0: Thank you to Daisy Wedge Jarrett on the staff team who helps us produce this podcast. And thank you to Paul Truman again on the staff team who helps us frame the episode
1: and to Josh and Jake on our Recorded Talks uh, volunteer team. They help us edit this whole thing and put it together, make it sound half-decent. So thank you very much to them.
0: And one big thank you to uh, Lee Baines from Lee Baines and the Glorifiers for the use of his track, which we use in our titles. Um, It's called I Can Change, and we are forever grateful to Lee Baines and the Glorifiers for everything they do. (laughs)
1: and if there's any listeners um worried about the fact that dante said top shelf in terms of rowan's books then top shelf clearly has a different meaning to dante in the states than it does perhaps for top shelf publications here in the uk so but we probably won't include that because that's a a reference that's lost on most people so it's fine <laughs>
0: that was um, lost on me i've only just got that reference
1: because
0: <laughs> we say like top that's top drawer which top is, draw. is like i guess like what are you saying top shelf top drawer
1: <laughs> top drawer yeah top drawer definitely